HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This is Coral, host of Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Yohoseki Kotema, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen sakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cook guests. And my guests today are Elena Yamamoto and Yael Pete, wonderfully talented chefs who cooked beautifully, uh, beautiful Japanese-influenced food at Karasu in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, until April. And they are, con- uh, they are constantly getting ready for their own restaurant. And Elena and Yael grew up in the U.S., but understand a sense of Japanese food very, very well. So today we'll discuss how they learn cooking Japanese food, how they incorporate traditional ideas and recipes into their dishes, the concept of their upcoming new restaurant, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Now let's start a conversation with Yael Pete and Elena Yamamoto. Welcome. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is very exciting. So I went to Karasu and uh, I was very impressed. It's really 
Japanese, but not Japanese in an amazing <laughs> way. So yeah. we'll discuss it today. So um, this is my uh, first question always. Where did you grow up and what did you eat in your childhood? Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, we both grew up in New Jersey, um, but we actually didn't know each other as kids. We lived about an hour away from each other. Um, so this is Yale, by the way. Yeah, this is Yale, by the way. And I grew up just with my mom. So for me, uh, cooking when I was young was kind of something that she equipped uh, to me to make me independent because she was working a lot. Um, so that was kind of like my night. It wasn't really a family around the dinner table, but I'd uh, more be cooking for my mom. And I was maybe only seven or eight, but I felt like such a grown up and a good helper by doing it. Wow. How cool is that? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I had kind of the opposite experience, but I'm so envious of that. And I like that it's different. Yeah. Yeah. My mom, um, and my dad, but mostly my mom would cook every day. We would sit down for family dinner every night. Um, and it would be a mix of just, you know, American food. My mother's American. And then whenever my mom was out of, my, out of town, my dad would usually make oyakodon or ramen or something very easy. Um, and we would always have, uh, we would make gyoza as a family and like mm. sit around and fold them and then eat that. So. Yeah, you got the best part of Japanese. Right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> awesome. And then how did you guys get into cooking? Um, well, I kind of fell into it accidentally. Um, again, we both have backgrounds in art. Um, didn't know this. Yeah, we have a we lot met. of similarities that we <laughs> yeah. did not know about. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I, you know, went to college for art and thought that I wanted to work in museums and did that for a little bit, but there's not a lot of money in that. So I was always like either waitressing at night or, you know, doing some other kind of side job. Um, and then that kind of turned into like one of those waitressing jobs turned into a back of house job and then it turned into a kitchen job and then I just kind of learned that way <laughs> oh wow but yeah. did it naturally ha happen you wanted to go more into the kitchen well yeah so <laughs> I had I had been living in DC for a little bit and was kind of disillusioned with working in museums there and then it's like well you know maybe I'll try the art world in New York there's more things happening there and I and I moved up here um I was working in galleries and I just hated it like so much. <laughs> Attitude. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, it was just I don't know. It was it was not what I had wanted or expected. So I kind of was like, well, you know, I already know that I love working in hospitality. Um, like some of my best friends, like I made that way when I was waitressing. So I figured I should just try that. So I answered a Craigslist ad and um, started working at the Momofuku Milk Bar Commissary Kitchen. Cool. Um, and I was just packaging cookies mm. <laughs> and like doing deliveries and stuff. Yeah, I've been there. It's very fun. Yeah, yeah um, it was it was a good transition because it was a lot of good people. And then um, Christina Tosi actually introduced me to Danny Bowen, and mm. then I moved over there. And so then, that's uh, the Mission Chinese. Yeah, and then he he's the one that stuck me in the kitchen. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and then I just kind of fell in love with it from there. So, mm. Well, you really show the talent, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, Yael, what about you? Uh, so I was also going to art school, but I was working at the same time. And all of my peers were just students. And I realized that I didn't really want to be at a desk or in an office or behind a computer anymore. 
And that was really scary for me because the only thing I knew how to do was draw. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is something I've always loved to do, but can I do it for a living? Do I want to? And I realized that um, the freelance structure doesn't work for me day to day. And, um, you know, suddenly cooking made sense beyond it just being food, but really having a sense of order. Mm. Um, that's what really drew me into the kitchen, like being on my feet and being energized. Uh, I fall asleep by the desk. I really, <laughs> I really, really do. Um, so I, I moved back to New York um, and started cooking and, and really that's what it was. It was being on my feet. And I feel like being in a kitchen is less about being some sort of really, really talented cook and being someone who's willing to, uh, listen and take directions, be on time and be someone you can rely on. Cause the best people I've ever worked with haven't been the most fabulous cooks, but they've always had sharp knives and Sharpies and clean pants and a really good attitude <laughs> and like willing to work 12 hours a day. So mm. if you can do those things, you've got the patience to become a cook. Mm. Wow. It's easy to say, but hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I mean, the kitchen is very chaotic. That's yeah. famously for yeah. chaotic. So, okay. And then you, know, you went to a French Culinary Institute. That's how you trained yourself. Uh, yeah, I did. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask me if it was the right thing to do. And honestly, I think taking an internship with a great restaurant would be a good approach, too. Like, I always said, if I could do it all over again, I would take that $20,000 and go to Europe and <laughs> stage, at, you know, in France or in Spain. Um, but the level one of the Culinary Institute, I think, is like a really pragmatic class. And I think it's very inexpensive. So I always tell people, like, if you want to do that uh, six-week program, you can come out of it um, with a better understanding of how to use your knife and basic produce, um, spices and herbs or something. I felt like I didn't understand at all as a kid, you know, um, and I can look at a thing of dried basil now and be like, what does this even do for a dish? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would say to people, try the level one course or really just just stash. Mm. And then after graduate, uh, you graduated, where did you work? Um, I ran away to Paris. Wow. Um, I didn't uh, successfully get a visa, so I just uh, wandered around France, and I was kind of just uh, an au pair and cooking for families and working in the farmer's market. And honestly, any country you go to, I would say, go to the farmer's market to see what kind of food the people there are eating. Like, that's the best way to get an idea of local mm. food. Mm. Right. It's beyond supermarket. Yeah, and beyond supermarket and beyond <laughs> restaurants. Like, mm. Right, interesting. I should remember that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then uh, you um, actually worked at uh, the uh, Shuko. I did. Right, and you, oh, actually first you went to work at the Prune. Yeah, I worked at um, a bunch of very, very small kind of rustic restaurants. Uh, Frankie's was also mm. quite small. I worked for the Aldi Law Group, so... Really, in all those years, I was primarily making pasta mm -hmm. and then working in an environment where you could always see your customers, uh, which I enjoyed. And I didn't want to lose that aspect of work. I didn't want the kitchen to be hidden. Mm. Um, and I always said that Prune was one of the most Japanese places that I worked at. <laughs> and it wasn't Jap <laughs> It wasn't Japanese food at all, but kind of like that was the first time I saw some real seasonality of ingredients. Um, and simplicity, like they weren't trying to uh, alter the food. They just wanted to highlight very, very simple ingredients. Mm. And it's also where I fell in love with radishes. 
And I feel like everything in Japanese food has daikon, and I love it. And I learned <laughs> yeah. that from that was because of prune. Mm. Right, prune ice. And they course. would, ne- yeah, they never call it Japanese food. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I think that's like Italian and Japanese simplicity, right? Because yeah. Gabriel Humston mm-hmm. really studied a lot in Italy. Yeah. So, well, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you went to Shiko, so that's like a big transformation. <laughs> well, I wanted to go from prune into fine dining. Um, and one of the big draws for Shugo for me was I still got to be in that open kitchen and not hidden away. And also that it's run by kind of a transformative generation of people. Um, there are no Japanese people working at Shugo. Mm, oh, by the way, so the listeners who aren't familiar with Shugo, Shugo is a serious Japanese sushi, uh, kaiseki restaurant. And uh, the mass alumni, Nick Kim and Jimmy Liu, uh, who came to the show on episode 95. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do a really amazing job. And it's kind of like a mixture of traditional Japanese, but very New York, too. Yeah, they're very And it's kind of L.A., too, because Nick is from L.A., but, he, you know, he's Korean, and uh, Jimmy's Chinese, and they just wanted to keep expanding that service um, to everyone. You know, they're like, Masa was willing to teach us even though we weren't Japanese, and we're willing to teach you even though you're not Japanese. Mm. Um, and I felt like that was, that was really, really generous. And at Shuko, I feel like primarily I, I really learned how to approach people directly because at other restaurants I could see my customer, but at Shuko, I was interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was a matter of keeping yourself presentable and your station because everyone could see the food you were working with. Um, and when you did well, it, it really paid off. It felt like a pretty magical experience. Mm. Um, yeah, it's almost like uh, the whole ambience and uh, how it's constructed. It's mm-hmm. almost like you chefs are encouraged to speak to you, to the guests. So mm-hmm. that's really And from then on, I'm like, I wanted to keep chasing that level of hospitality. I'm mm-hmm. like, I want to keep interacting with my customers because I think it makes the experience mm-hmm. uh, better and more well-rounded. Right. Yeah, I really think so. Like your mother's cooking is the best because they... You know, mothers think of who's eating. Yeah. Right? There's always that, like, kind of consciousness of who's touching everything. And you know you know the customer, you know the person making it. Mm. It's, like, such a special bond that happens. Right. And uh, so, Elena, you had two years' experience in Japan. It was almost three. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah. So when and why did you go to Japan? Um, well, so after I left Mission Chinese, um, I, I was there for a while and kind of was thinking like, okay, so this was my first cooking job. Um, I love it, but if I'm going to pursue cooking as like an actual career, I should probably study something that I, I really love. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Japanese food made the most sense. And, um, I don't know, I'm still a Japanese citizen, so it was very easy for me to move there. Oh, cool, um, because the father's, yeah. your father is Japanese. Yeah, and I was like 26, turning 27. I was like, why not? There, I have no responsibilities here. Um, I might as well just do it, because if not now, then when? Um, and I just moved. Well, and do, <laughs> do you speak Japanese? No, I didn't actually grow up speaking Japanese. Um my dad tried to teach me, but um, I wasn't a very good student. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't <blame> you. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I went, um, and all of my dad's family still lives there. So I was staying with my aunt and uncle, and I signed up for some Japanese language classes in the morning because I figured, you know, it would make sense to have some like 
grammatical structure Mm. (laughs) and like learn that. So I did that five days a week in the mornings. And then one of my classmates um, worked at a shabu shabu place as a dishwasher. Um, He was Russian and he was like, I think I could get you a job there if you're interested. And I was like, yes, yes, I need to make some sort of money. (laughs) (laughs) And so he got me a job at one of their other locations. Um, And then I just kind of worked up from there. Um, Mm. And then they quickly moved me from just doing dishes to working with all the vegetables um, and then moving into the kitchen. And then I met a bunch of other people and then I switched jobs and... I don't know. It was a very organic way of doing things. Mm. It, I got very lucky. Uh, but also, I think you really showed how professionally you are skilled to mm-hmm. cook in any environment. Yeah. And I mean, it was great for learning Japanese, too. I mean, when I moved there, I felt like I knew nothing. And then by the time I left, after almost three years, um, I wouldn't say that I'm fluent, but I'm more than functional. Like, I, all of my coworkers only spoke Japanese, so mm. we were good friends and we worked well together. So, right. yeah. wow. So, um, how was uh, you know? But it must be very different kind of rules and systems, right? In a Japanese yeah, kitchen, very different. Um, I think it was helpful that I had only had like one real kitchen experience before that, um, because then I was kind of like a blank slate for them. Like I understood food and the basics of kitchens, but I could learn how they wanted me to do things because they're very particular Mm. and they're very polite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, you know, instead of it's, it's, you know, you have to retrain your brain because part of working in kitchens is about how you move your body. Um, And I, like, you know, in New York, you would say behind if you're moving behind someone. But instead, in Japan, you say, um, shitsureishimasu, which mm. is, like, a lot longer and yeah. <laughs> much more polite. Um, but, you know, it's like learning those little things and, you know, making sure to go in and say good morning to every single person on staff and making sure how you present to customers is, you know, the most polite and the most proper and the, you know... I don't know. Omotenashi is like, mm. it means hospitality, and that guides kind of every movement that you do. Mm. So, when you're preparing the vegetables or preparing the meat, you're cutting it in a way that will be easy to eat with chopsticks or, you know, with a spoon because you know how it's going to be presented. Mm. And then, you know, that kind of it guides everything. Mm. That's really important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. So, like, small things, but greeting to each person, you're mm-hmm. building kind of team, team spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had, like, you know, line up beforehand, and we had a little chant that we did before yeah. the service. <laughs> um, or other places we would line up and, like, you know, there was, like, a, you know, the Shinto shelf, mm. and we would clap before service. Um, things like that. It was It was a good way to kind of, like, align yourself and remember that you're part of a team mm. and then go and serve customers accordingly. Yeah. Did you guys do <laughs> the same at the Karasu? <laughs> no, it was a, it's harder to wrangle New Yorkers. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's different, I think, energy and yeah. the move, air movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen two Shinto shrines in the city, though. One in Wogashi and one in um, Ushiwakamaru. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because you receive the bounty of the nature, mm-hmm. so you have to be always grateful yeah. and responsible to mm-hmm. consume any piece of yeah. food. <laughs> so, okay, so what what was your takeaway from the experience of cooking in Japan? Um, I, um, in all of the places that I worked, I work in I worked in like a, a shabu shabu place. Um, I worked as a caterer 
on like a movie set. I worked um, at a French place. I worked at a Michelin star Japanese place. I worked in a lot of places, but everything, every single restaurant and every single experience really, um, it was grounded in like hyper seasonality. Like we were going to the farmer's market or the restaurant had a, a farm that they were working with directly and they would send things to them. Um, and then my family's also, they're farmers. So just being that kind of connected to what was happening in like in the actual earth, you know, mm. and um, and then seeing that reflected on the plates um, and just seeing how excited customers would get when it's like, oh, you know, next week we're going to have bamboo shoots because they've been waiting all year. They're so excited for it. So like having that kind of very um, public understanding of seasonality like mm. your customers know that too right. and they and they feel that and they're excited about that so that's something that we try and bring into how we cook food mm. and then also just you know like we were talking about before hospitality like having that kind of level of service everywhere you go mm. um even if it's just like a tiny neighborhood izakaya or a michelin starred restaurant like they know if you go in a lot, like they know if you're left-handed or right-handed, they know if you want a beer immediately or if you, you know, are interested in shochu. It's like that kind of like in like the individualization of service was really mm. lovely. Right. So you have to be conscious. Yeah. It's just, you know, like you're always paying attention. Like you're Anytime you're doing anything, even when you're cutting something and preparing something, your eyes are up and you're looking and you're watching to see how people respond to things. Mm. So like, oh, they definitely liked that. I'm going to make that for them again. Or maybe that wasn't the right fit. I'm going to go this direction for the rest of the meal. Mm. Um, just that kind of like hyper awareness. Right. Well, I can't wait to see you guys in your place. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's why we want the new place, though, because in New York, the hospitality scene feels very busy and very rushed um and you know we we could be more financially successful maybe if we had a larger restaurant but we would rather make less and be able to preserve intimacy and mm. we think that'll really help the quality of our lives and our employees lives as well mm. um so yeah it is kind of like a really personal goal for us yeah. mm. but finally we can kind of deliver that level of consideration that we feel like we're capable of doing and maybe weren't able to pull off in New York before. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to do it when you're working for someone else who has different goals, mm -hmm. you know? And I think now having this opportunity to build our own restaurant and follow, like, what, what our values are, that's really exciting because it's, you know, I get it. As an owner, you're going to have a singular vision about something and everyone else needs to abide by that. Mm. And that just didn't work for us. Right. <laughs> so now it's like, let's, and we get to start fresh. Yeah, let's make our own. The mm. best, the best time to do it is right from the beginning. Instead of yeah. like trying to change someone else, like we could just start new and set the rules now. Mm. Mm. Right. Well, it sounds like you have a best combination of different experiences. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that that helps a lot with how we even make dishes and how we make food. Mm. Like we have similar but very different backgrounds and likes and dislikes so when we're making food it's like well i don't know i'll bring something and say oh let's do this and let's make it this way and she'll come in and it's like oh i think it actually needs this or you know vice versa mm. and that kind of that helps 
create a much more balanced dish right. and something that appeals to a lot of people, not mm. just one particular palette, you know? Awesome. Yeah, it's like we're almost we're almost stylistically opposite, but our ability to compromise, I feel like, creates a better product than we could have ever made on our own. Mm. Mm. And it's crazy how similar we are and how different we are. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> right. And also we have the common artistic background. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but our styles are so different. Our styles <laughs> are very different. But our, but our passion is the same. And like mm. our, our moral values are the same. And those are the things that really, really count, you know, because mm. from there you can build off in all directions from mm-hmm. that. Right. All right. So we're going to discuss the new restaurant in a moment, mm-hmm. but I just want to uh, learn what, you know, kind of restaurant Karas was and what you created. So, um, so you left Karasu in Brooklyn in April, but, um, what was the concept of Karasu? It's like a izakaya, Japanese izakaya. Yeah. I think, um, the owners had taken a trip to Kyoto Yeah, and really liked, um, like the hotel bars and that kind of thing. So I think that's that's what their goal was. They wanted to recreate that kind of like high-end cocktail bar experience in Japan and just have kind of food as another option because they felt like you can make more money with mm. food and drink and not just drinks. Um, and then I, w- I actually wasn't there at the beginning. I was, so. Yeah, um, they didn't really have a strong food concept except they had built out this very, very... A little kitchen so very little yeah very little <laughs> um, yeah, this room is bigger than yeah, so they, <laughs> so they wanted to keep the food uh you know pretty fresh and cold so we could do it without too many cooking vessels uh and then walters backed us up by making the karage and um some grilled dishes mm. so the, this uh the kairos is a tiny kind of like a speakeasy space behind mm-hmm. bigger restaurant yes. walters mm-hmm. so so i just took that and um they, they gave me a lot of room to really do whatever I wanted. And I said that I wanted something more like an izakaya. Um, because one of the reasons why I left Shuko is that even though I loved uh, eating sushi and making sushi, it wasn't my main passion. And I feel like if you're going to do something like sushi, you can't do it halfway. Mm. Um, and they understood that I wanted to be working more in the way that I had before, but with these Japanese ingredients. And um, and I wanted to be back in Brooklyn, so I took a huge risk with Karasu, and I said to myself, if I could just get through this and find someone who understands the project, I'll make it. And then I found Alina, and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I, was gonna, I had been working for like three and a half months on my own, and I was like, I don't know how many more weeks I could do this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that like really made the menu become what it was. Mm. Right. So, um, oh, by the way, I heard that um, um, when Elena joined Karasu to work under under Yael, mm-hmm. um, Yael told the owners to be equal co-chefs. So <laughs> what's the idea? Well, um, Karasu was very small and it was not the kind of place where you could have an assistant and a bunch of cooks. Like it really needed to be two equals working together so that we could, um, you know, take time off and cover for each other. And it's just... It wouldn't work with a typical kitchen brigade due to its size. Mm. Um, and also, you know, I told them that I was still a student when it came to Japanese food. Like, I wasn't a master. I wasn't claiming that I knew what I was doing. I just told them it was something that I liked to do. And that if I was going to do it all alone, I might not get the right opportunity to keep learning. Mm. Um, you know, and then Alina came back with so much information and so much enthusiasm and experience 
And I was like, I want you to teach me these things, but I like, you, you can't be under me. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, right. That's very cool. Yeah. It's definitely not the typical path that most chefs take. Mm. I think, uh, a lot of them could afford to learn a little bit about teamwork though. Well, yeah, I think, I don't know. There's so much value in collaborating. Mm-hmm. Like what would each of us have gained if one of us had been above the other? You know, it's like it would have just made one of us be taking credit for the other's work and that doesn't feel good and that doesn't lead to creativity. Like I feel like because we were equal partners in it, you know, we could argue and we could work on things and we could um, just just a, build a better menu mm. um, and learn a lot of different things. Because, you know, I don't have a traditional background in... Um, you know, I didn't go to cooking school. I didn't do any of that. So there are gaps in my knowledge. Mm. Like I know things from different chefs, um, that they've like taught me directly, but there's other things where I'm like, I don't know how to do that very basic thing. And she knows how to do that. So it's Mm. like, it's a very symbiotic relationship. Yeah. So that's the, the humbleness and kind of like, you know, modest attitude that's, that's, that's really Japanese to me now right okay and uh, so what did you learn from the experience at Karate um I think I don't know we I think we learned a lot I think we learned what we love and also what we don't love we learned how to make the most out of very very little <laughs> yeah I, um it's kind of one of those things like I don't know I think Yael's had this experience too where you know we've worked in so many very strange situations and different kinds of kitchens and I don't know events that are understaffed and difficult but it's like if we could make that work then we can make anything work Mm -hmm. like if this is the hardest it's going to be then we're totally fine and I mean inevitably something else harder comes along but it's like we have this kind of base knowledge we can make an entire menu of food for a very busy restaurant work with three induction burners and a toaster oven. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and so many of the Karasu menu items were not a matter of, oh, what do we want to cook, but what can we pull off with four burners and a toaster oven? Like, and what then, can we feasibly not only create, but create 50 times a night? And, have, and, and it's going to be consistent and delicious. Right. And I think it led to, like, that kind of, those constraints led to a lot of creativity, mm-hmm. which was really cool to explore. We definitely made dishes that we would have never figured out how to make otherwise. Yeah, so, we developed our own techniques. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, uh, what's the example of that kind of dish? Um, well, anything we did in the toaster oven was all, like, um, pre-portioned and made in, like, a perfect aluminum packet. Mm. Yeah, just so we could, you know, do it quickly and, like, have it be ready with eight minutes in the toaster oven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they they said amazing. Because, yeah, we didn't have an oven uh, to roast in or a pan to saute in. So -hmm. it's like, how do you make that work? And I I started making pasta and I started drying it because there was no fridge or freezer to put it in. Like, Mm -hmm. storage was a huge thing, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, like, what else? There's a lot of things, like, we wanted to do but couldn't, like, tempera... Um, yeah, it definitely limited a lot of fried things I wanted to fried do. things, sautéed <laughs> things like that just wasn't really an option because it mm. would just the room just immediately smelled like right, oil. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's like, is there something that tastes as good cold as it would hot? You know, asking questions like that. Yeah. And it, I mean, it definitely pushed us to make a lot 
more like variations of salads and things like that or mm. you know push the concept of what what a salad could be right. just because we were working mostly out of a fridge mm. and less with like hot food um and that was great because I mean that's how we like to eat too mm. so it made sense um but I think sometimes in restaurants people want that hot food so right well it's funny though when I was there with a big group of people mm-hmm. and uh uh, some of them were super regulars, mm-hmm. and I was like, I was looking forward to this chicken karage for <laughs> weeks, and like, really, yeah. that means something. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely one of our most popular dishes. But that's actually that's a combination of, so one of our servers, that's his mother's recipe that mm. we like made a slight variation of, um, and then added some sauces. His and things mom to it. actually brought some of her karage to the restaurant for us to try. It was wow. very sweet. Yeah. And in her recipe for ginger, it would say one th- thumb of ginger, like like Yoey's, like our like friend Yoey's size thumb. Yeah, <laughs> her son's thumb. Ah, that's cute. <laughs> it's very personal. Yeah. Right. All right. So uh, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about Yale and Lena's new restaurant. So please stay with us. <laughs> Today's program is brought to you by Koin, supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Koin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Koin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese, broadcasting live from the studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guests today uh, are Elena Yamamoto and Yael Pete, wonderfully talented chefs who cooked beautiful Japanese-influenced food at Karasu in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, until April. So they are currently getting ready for uh, their own new restaurant. So let's talk about your new restaurant. But before that, I wanted to talk about your philosophy of cooking, uh, which we will obviously see in up- upcoming new menu. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I know that you called your food a Japanese-American at Karasu, right? So mm-hmm. do, is the continue, and then when you cook, um, how do you incorporate and adjust traditional ideas to and recipes into your dishes? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I always call it Japanese-American food because we're not, we're not trying to like, you know, recreate exactly what your experience in Japan would be. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of, a lot of people forget about Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a static culture. It's continually changing. It's continually growing. Um, 
Like I have a lot of friends that I used to cook with in Japan and now they have restaurants of their own too. And what they're doing is really pushing the envelope of what Japanese food is. And it, you know, it only stands to reason that what we're doing here, even though it's heavily influenced and I mean, it is Japanese food, but it's, it's Japanese through food through the lens of our experiences growing up here in the States. Like it can't possibly be authentic Japanese food. Um, so it's, you know, it has grown into something else. So sometimes we'll start with a recipe, um, from my aunt or my grandmother, like a very specific one, but you know, maybe we can't get this one ingredient. So we'll do something else that Mm -hmm. is readily available here, or, um, it'll bring to mind some other dish that one of us has cooked in the past or had in the past. Um, and they're like, okay, so, you know, maybe we marry these two ideas, like instead of, um, you know, a traditional like non-banzuke, maybe we'll throw shrimp in there instead and Mm. like do something different or, I don't know, just things like that, I guess. We once bought a case of uh, bergamot to use as a substitution for yuzu. Wow. And we ended up making uh, like kizami like strands. We made a syrup out of it. We made yuzu kosha out of it. We made shichimi out of it. Wow. And it wouldn't be uh, authentic or traditional to use bergamot, but we don't have yuzu in sudachi here right now. So it's like, why not take something that's seasonal and available? Like that I, sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm going to try that. <laughs> yeah, it turned out pretty good, actually. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's like I would rather um, use the techniques and approaches to Japanese food than just use the ingredients and call it Japanese. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, yeah, that's definitely like how we, I don't know, my aunt always says most food only needs a little bit of salt, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of pepper. Like, you know, you don't need to do that much. You should be able to taste the ingredient that you're using because that's that's what guides you in the kitchen mm-hmm. if you have a beautiful vegetable let it be a beautiful vegetable mm-hmm. don't transform it in a crazy way and don't do it's like you know taste taste what you're eating right. and um and i don't know just like honor its natural flavors and i think that's that's kind of like that spirit of Japanese cooking is definitely in everything that we do. Mm. Um, right. And I like to focus on that more than just the, you know, I go to restaurants and I see shiso and ume and yuzu and uni on everything. <laughs> and I'm like, it's not, it's not the ingredients that makes it feel Japanese. It's the approach mm-hmm. of it. Mm. And that's what we really want to focus on more than just physically what's in front of you. Right. And I think what you guys are saying that, you know, you mentioned the seasonality mm-hmm. and you can focus on ingredients because that's the peak mm-hmm. of the best of the ingredient. Yeah. So that makes sense. And yeah. luckily things are in season around the same time between where we're looking in Japan and New York. Yeah. Mm. Relatively. Yeah. Relatively. Right. Yeah, but that's kind of a necessity. Mm-hmm. We create the invention, like, you know, bergamot is a great example. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And so, um, a kind of related question, but, you know, being non-Japanese, like 100% Japanese, mm-hmm. I grew up in this country. And how do you, wh- what is the mission of for you to cook Japanese food? Um, I think for me, it's, it's, well, it's a way for me to kind of understand my own relationship with being Japanese because, you know, I am half Japanese and that's a very kind of, it can sometimes be a difficult position to be in, Mm. Um, especially working in Japan. That was not the easiest 
for me. Like <laughs> it probably would have been easier if I had been a hundred percent American, you know? Oh. Um, instead there's a lot of expectations that go along with having the last name Yamamoto, right. you know? Yeah. So people um, don't know how to yeah, deal with the situation. Or, or they expect me to know more than I do know. Mm. Um, Even though, you know, my dad is extremely Japanese and <laughs> my family is extremely Japanese. So, you know, it's just a, just like a new generation of Japanese mm. and what that means. So cooking Japanese food for me is, it's just an exploration of that. This mm. is like my, this is how I can stay close to my grandmother and my aunt because we continually talk about food. Um, and, you know, my grandfather He's 92, but he still grows vegetables in his garden. Oh, and yeah. All we talk about is vegetables. <laughs> it's the only topic of conversation. Um, so it's like, you know, it's a very, it's very personal for me to be mm -hmm. cooking Japanese food. But it's also, I don't know, it's how I like to eat. Mm. So it only makes sense to cook what I like to eat. Mm, you know? That's fantastic. Yeah, what about you, yeah? Um, I would definitely agree that it's something I really, really like to eat. Um, and it's beyond just what the dish is, but I just like to eat in that kind of light, clean way in general. Um, and for me, I enjoy still being a student. Like, I don't want to claim to be a master of anything, even though I'm going to own a restaurant. I like having the opportunity to keep learning and keep learning, because I feel like that's The, the ceiling's not there yet, and I want to get better. Um, and a lot of it is Alina. You know, um, when I entered Krasu, I came in with a really personal love for Japanese food, but now I feel like I have someone who can teach me, and I'm not that close with my family, and I really like watching the way her family interacts with food. Um, mm -hmm. It's really exciting for me because it's an opportunity I didn't get to grow up having. Mm. You know, it's, it's very personal. Um, And I wouldn't go forward with a project like this without her. Mm. I think I would have just gone traveling and farming. <laughs> <laughs> Which also sounds nice. It is yeah, nice. Right? <laughs> yeah, but I think, uh, you know, this New York City kind of um, cultural mindset, mm -hmm. it's the New York City food, American food, is something you pick and choose and create mm -hmm. your own. Mm -hmm. So you have a perfect background together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's wonderful. So... Um, So you have a, um, what's the concept of new restaurant? Do you have a name or is this? We do have a name. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is the first time we're like speaking it out into the world. Um, yeah. It's called, it's going to be called Furies. Um, it's, uh, it's actually my grandfather's name on my mom's side. So he was Fury. And uh, I don't know, we liked, I've always thought it would be like a great, a great name for a restaurant because mm. it's just like an unusual Italian American name. Mm. And, um, and I don't know when we were like first throwing around the ideas, it's like, Oh, well, you know, what if we started a restaurant when we were like prepping next to each other one day, <laughs> <laughs> if we had our own restaurant, this is what we would do. And yeah. I was like, I'm going to start taking notes of and that. And then like, you know, it just sort of grew. And then I kind of mentioned, it's like, I always wanted a restaurant named Furies. And then that just sort of clicked because um, while we were both working at Karasu um, my grandfather Fury Nick um, he passed away and Yael's grandfather passed away mm -hmm. and so that was kind of like a I don't know a pivotal moment for us um, and then also you know having a restaurant named after a family member mm -hmm. felt right too um, but we also didn't we didn't want a name that was like explicitly Japanese because mm -hmm. what we're making isn't explicitly Japanese um, 
And then it's cool, too, because, you know, there's the Greek Furies, which were, like, these three women who were exactors of vengeance. And I kind of also, <laughs> I like that kind of imagery as well. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's the imagination, so that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right. So what's the idea? Like, izakaya again or some... Yeah. Well, so we wanted to finally take it that one step further beyond Krasu and be serving uh, customers ourselves. So uh, we are going to have a counter-style restaurant. Nice. Yeah, that's, I feel like that's the biggest uh, shifting point. But uh, the menu is also going to be a little more seasonal um, and have a little more flow. So if we do have that regular comes in and we say, oh, we know they love Oden, like we'll, we'll have something ready for them. Because mm -hmm. um, I think we both have enough kind of fine dining experience and perspective to understand customer relationships at that level. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's our own place, we'll be able to say, is it easy for us to reprint our menus every day? Is there a customer note in the reservation system? Like we can finally take that closer look at that relationship and mm. uh, really execute it at Furies. Right. So it's going to be like omakase based? Um, we, well, we're definitely going to have a regular menu where you could order a la carte off of. But um, we do like the... I don't know. We're, we're probably, <laughs> there's still a lot of things in flux. <laughs> um, but um, we do want to have like an option of having less like a course meal, um, but more like a chef set, like, mm. because that's how you would, you would eat at home, <laughs> you mm. know, um, and not just ordering just karage and just tonkatsu, um, because there's no balance to that kind of meal. And being able to offer a set where, you know, you're getting multiple different kinds of dishes and different tastes of things instead of having to order an entire order of this, an entire order of that, mm. to make it possible to go and eat a lot of things with just one, per like by yourself mm. or with two people. Um, that's kind of where we're going with it instead of having it be this like long drawn out coursed meal. Because mm. right. it still needs to feel very like, I mean, we're, we're shooting for, like, fine dining style of service, like mm. that kind of level, but it should still feel homey. Mm. Right. Maybe it's, uh, you know, kaiseki is a very formal, but, the, you know, kapo yeah. style. Mm -hmm. It's like a chef is at the counter. And yeah, yeah. kapo is not a, not a bad way to put it. That's definitely but I right. Like, I like this blend of our regulars knowing that they could come get something special and our new guests um, leaving saying, oh, I wouldn't have thought to order that, and now I'm so glad I had it in front of me, or I've never tried that before, like... Mm -hmm. Um, at Karasu when our friends would come in we would send them kind of half sizes of lots of like ohitashi or like turnips with moromi miso and um, we noticed then it's like you can have a bite of fried chicken but then you get this fresh bite too and you're alternating between flavors and textures and it makes for a much fuller meal mm. Mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna go <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so do you have any plan about you know specific time of opening and location um we are shooting for early 2020 um and we're still in the process of looking for a space um Good luck with that yeah mm -hmm. uh it's just a it's a big debate uh whether we want to stay in brooklyn or whether we want to go into manhattan or not um there's a lot of factors mm. going into that decision right but so that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, well, this is my final question. But, you know, obviously you are beautiful, two ladies. So <laughs> what do you think about being female chefs in this, you know, times of, you know, whatever? <laughs> oh, that's like, that's a hard question. <laughs> well, I heard a male chef say, well, you're going to do well. You're a woman. Women chefs are just getting everything these days. And 
I said to him in my mind and not to his face, well, you got everything forever, (laughs) forever. And, you know, this is the time for women to step up. It's like we finally have a little more space and a little more freedom. You know, you don't have to be a mom. You don't have to be a wife. You can choose those things if you want. And I'm so glad that we get to do this at the time that we do. Yeah. Well, and I think um, the female uh, food industry community is so it's so strong right now like and um I don't know and it's very collaborative too like we've met so many other women who either own their own restaurant or are working towards that goal or you know excellent in their own fields in whatever way they're doing their thing Mm -hmm. um and it's just everyone's been so encouraging and offering any sort of like you know we can share information and we can grow together and it feels very I don't know. I feel like we're in a really supportive community right now um, within the the female community. Right. And I think it should be collaboration over competition. Mm-hmm. Mm, right. And I think, uh, why do you even ask male or female in the first place? Right. right? Of course. Yeah. yeah. So like that's the really it. kind of backwards. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Finally, we started to ask, like, what's, what's the matter? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think everyone feels like that, but. I think there's, at least in New York, there's certainly like a, a really positive momentum in that area. Mm. Yeah, it's funny that because uh, everybody's talking about mothers cooking, mm-hmm. and then once they become professionals, mm-hmm. people will like shut the door. Like it doesn't like make sense. Yeah, so. yeah, no. I had that when I first started cooking um, at Mission Chinese. There was like a lot of females like in the kitchen, and um, and it was fun because it was like there's a window there and everyone could see. And I was telling my friend, I was like, it's really cool to be a part of that. Where like, you know, when kids come in with their parents, they can see like you can do this too. Um, and then my friend was like, why do you think that? Like most people grow up watching their mothers cook. Everyone knows that women can cook too. Mm. Like, yeah, but who do you see at the top? (laughs) (laughs) It's not usually the girls. So it's like, it's a nice, like, I don't know. I thought it was a good way to reinforce it, to Mm. just be visible. Right. It's uh, the power pyramid, which (laughs) we don't need anymore. (laughs) Right. Okay, so uh, where can we find your update? What's the best way to find you guys? Um, we are posting everything on our new Furies Instagram. Um, it's just Furies NYC. Um, and that's that's probably going to be the best place to find it because we're still in the process of building a website and doing all of that stuff. We're, uh, we're also doing a lot of events right now. Everything from high-end sit-downs to past app parties charities and we're always updating that on our instagram so we hope uh, everyone comes along and checks it out great so good luck thank thank you uh, maybe (laughs) when you open and everything goes you know up and running you Mm -hmm. can come back and oh yeah we would love that absolutely (laughs) yeah so thank you for joining us today thanks for having thank you all right so listeners if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikotema.com Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Sitcha, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer today is Max Miller, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.